Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. I'm Kim Dion, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Beattie-Riedel. Thanks, Kim. So as we start our first news wrap of 2019, I wanted to focus in on citizens and what actions they're taking to make their countries more democratic, better governed, and more peaceful. I mean, obviously, we know in any country throughout the globe, citizens often don't really have many incentives to participate. It takes up our time. It can be dangerous. It takes resources to get there and organize others. And we might as well just free ride and let others speak out rather than getting involved ourselves. But as we've seen throughout the continent in recent weeks and in recent years, despite these costs and disincentives, often we do see people go out and demand change for themselves and their communities. So in recent weeks, we've seen protests in Sudan. We've talked about protests in Togo and Uganda, Togo Dubu regarding the upcoming referendum on term limits and the ongoing domination of the government there. And in Uganda, regarding the fair treatment and uh, the singer, actor, and opposition leader, Bobby Wine. And we heard recently in episode 47 from Lauren Morris McLean and George Bob Miller about student protests in Ghana. So this week in Senegal, activists took to the streets by the thousands to demonstrate for electoral transparency in the upcoming February presidential elections. And the opposition in particular is asking for the current minister of the interior to step down from his role in organizing the election, given his close connections to current President Macky Sall. So there's contestation also over which candidates will be allowed on the ballot, including the former president, Abdoulaye Wad's own son. So this surge of protests really ties in perfectly with what we'll be hearing from your interview, Kim, with Lisa Mueller this week, which can help inform our understanding more broadly of who protests and when and why they do so. Right. And talking about protests, I wanted to share a monkey cage piece written by Nisrin El-Amin and Zachariah Monpili on the recent protests in Sudan that you mentioned. While some media outlets are calling the protests bread riots, Elamine and Mompili illustrate that it took more than a rise in bread prices to bring Sudanese to the streets. The demands protesters are making are explicitly political. As they write, protesters are calling for the overthrow of the ruling NCP party, as well as the small group of political and economic elites, including some opposition party leaders who have held power for decades. They caution against framing the Sudanese uprising as spontaneous riots against rising bread prices because it obscures the ways working class Sudanese have mobilized against the regime, particularly in smaller towns, which have been hit hardest by recent austerity measures following decades of political neglect and repression. Their piece offers a great history of successful Sudanese revolutions against military regimes, as well as a description of the role of unions in those revolutions. And it analyzes how the current protests are different from earlier protests in Sudan. That's really interesting as we look at the way in which, you know, we think it might be about bread or the cost of oil or unemployment, right? But often these really take on much broader questions about the domination of the the regime and what the government's providing its citizens. Right. And just to go back to elections, since you were talking about the Senegalese elections, I wanted to share a Quartz Africa piece that gives an overview of African elections scheduled in 2019. Now, the first elections will be in Nigeria in February, and our episode next week will include a conversation with Matthew Page on the upcoming Nigerian elections that you and I had at the African Studies Association. But the other elections scheduled for 2019 in chronological order are, as you mentioned, Senegal in February, but also Algeria in April, South Africa and Malawi in May, Mauritania at some point mid-year, Mozambique, Botswana, and Namibia all having elections in October, and then Tunisia in December. 
going to be a busy year. And I know that that raises many, many questions about how the domestic processes will be organized, the role of electoral commissions, the role of the courts in overseeing those processes, and the role of international observers. So I was just listening recently to Judd Devermont's podcast, and he was talking about the role of international election observers, particularly in the wake of the Kenyan election and and the like. So um, this will be a very busy election season. We'll definitely be keeping you posted. And speaking of elections, we've been covering the unfolding events surrounding the DRC elections. Um, and Laura C. talked to us about what that was, how that was shaping up. Now, recently, the Electoral Commission is scheduled to release provisional results on Sunday, but has said that there could be delays because of the slow arrival of tally sheets. Now, some of the latest news coming out of the country involves the Catholic Church. And the role of religion in politics in Africa is a subject that my co-author, Gwyneth McClendon, and I have been working on with a forthcoming book, From Pews to Politics. So this immediately caught my interest. Now, the Secretary General of the Church Bishops Conference, known as SENCO, said on Thursday that its vote tallies showed a clear victory in the December 30th election. And this was a pronouncement that they made based on their own role in election observation. And it's a pronouncement that was widely seen as a warning to authorities against rigging the vote. Then the Electoral Commission quickly shot back against this claim and said that the Catholic Church was preparing an insurrection by saying that it knows the winner of last Sunday's presidential election and that this declaration that the church made violated electoral law and code of conduct signed by all poll monitors, which gives the Electoral Commission, the CENI, alone the authority to announce the results. So there's a bit of back and forth here in terms of who has authority um, to speak about how the electoral results are shaping up. And the battle lines are really being drawn as one of the most powerful institutions in the country speaks out publicly about these election results. Yes, I read about this as well in a piece published by Africa Confidential, which is a great resource for our listeners who want to read analytical work on politics and economies on the continent. The way I read the Africa Confidential piece is that the church made the announcement because the government had banned the media from reporting results. And right, Senko had, was it 40,000 observers at the polls? And what they were doing was they were preempting the SENI results announcement because they knew that the media couldn't. Exactly. And Kabila's government cut access to the internet as well as Radio France International and some local media this week saying that it wanted to prevent fake news results from circulating. And this is really a dramatic step because so many domestic election monitors and opposition poll watchers, the people that the opposition parties appoint to sit in the polls as their own observers, they all use the internet to share their local polling station results, you know, by cell phone uh, messaging to tally up their independent count. So international and domestic organizations alike were really alarmed about this internet cut and what it signaled that the government intends for these elections. And we'll keep watching that as events unfold in the DRC. I did want to talk about something, you know, uh, I'm gearing up for our next academic term, and I've been coordinating with my UCR colleague in history, Jody Benjamin. I'm taking our students to an exhibition at the UCLA Fowler Museum called World on the Horizon, Swahili Arts Across the Indian Ocean. It's a great exhibit, and I encourage folks in Southern California to, to visit the Fowler and take a look. Going to the Fowler this past weekend to plan the excursion gave me a chance to also catch the last day of Striking Iron, an exhibition featuring amazing blacksmithing works from across the continent, uh, including actually many pieces from Congolese peoples. Just being at the Fowler made me think of one of my favorite museums, the Fondation Zinsu in Ouida Benin. 
And it reminded me of the news in late December of the newly opened Museum of Black Civilizations in Dakar, Senegal. I hope to be fortunate to return to Dakar sometime soon and visit that museum, inshallah. Absolutely. Thanks, Kim, for those updates. And that way our listeners will be on the lookout wherever they may find themselves in relationship to these great productions. And next week, we'll post links to what we've mentioned in this episode, as well as bonus links on our website, ufahamaafrica.com. This week's conversation is with Lisa Mueller, an assistant professor of political science at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. Lisa earned her bachelor's degree at Pomona College and her PhD from UCLA. She's the author of the new book published by Cambridge University Press, Political Protest in Contemporary Africa. I spoke with her prior to the ongoing Sudanese protests mentioned in this week's news wrap while we were both attending the annual meeting of the African Studies Association in Atlanta, Georgia in November 2018. Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, Lisa. We're really glad to have you join us and talk about your book and, and other things. I just wanted to start by asking you a pretty basic question. Can you tell our listeners what first interested you in studying protest? Yeah, well, I hate to take myself back to graduate school, that dark <laughs> place we all prefer to forget. Yeah. But when I was a graduate student, I was more drawn initially to studying behavior as opposed to institutions. Right. And I mean, that division in the discipline of political science is somewhat false, but I wanted to study behaviors that were closer to what ordinary people live. Right. I'm not saying that ordinary people protest every day, right. but protest participation seemed closer to quotidian life than congressional rules or right. elections that only happen intermittently. Right. And in the countries that interested me, they happened very <laughs> intermittently. And so I wanted to study behavior. And within that area, I don't think this was a conscious decision, but I'm really glad in retrospect that I made the decision to choose a type of behavior that's both exciting and hopeful. Huh. Because to sustain the hard work of graduate research and beyond, I just couldn't be depressed all the time. Yeah. And so much of the other topics that you and I study right. are they're, they're real downers. They're very important. Yeah. But You're in terms to of the woman who wrote a book on AIDS. Exactly. Yeah. I know you know far better than I do. And yeah. I don't want to say that our experience of sadness as scholars, you know, in any way is comparable to the suffering of the people we're experiencing. And I mean, and there's this whole interesting and appropriate critique of pain narratives and what right. it means to tell those. And we could have a whole other podcast on that. But I didn't see myself thriving mm-hmm. while studying those kinds of really, really difficult, normatively difficult topics. I think I knew myself better and I knew that the road ahead was going to be difficult enough. And so I wanted to choose a topic that was hopeful. Yeah. It's so interesting. So you're the second scholar of protest that is referred to them as hopeful. And it's not, (laughs) so it's not typically an adjective I associated with protest before, but it's so interesting that people who study revolutionary politics are are seeing it as something that's hopeful. And of course, it's, it's consistent with the idea that like people aren't going to put their lives on the line if they aren't really hoping that something better is going to come with it. Yes and no. I mean, I, I regarded protests and still do regard them as hopeful in 
terms of their eventual outcomes. Yeah. And incidentally, my new research agenda focuses more on the outcomes of protests as opposed to their causes, which yeah. is the subject of my first book. But from the perspective of people who protest, it's often not hope that leads yeah. them into the street. I mean, this is one of my major findings. It's that people with low expectations of upward mobility are systematically likelier to take to the streets. And so it's an intermingling of mm. hope and pessimism mm. that I found so interesting in protest. It's not sanguine as a field of study. Mm. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of pain. There mm. can be violence. Mm -hmm. But all of that also mixes with hope. And so that was kind of the saving, saving grace in that topic area. I mean, compared to the study of civil war, right. which I also considered, I mean, that's also exciting, but I find it much less hopeful. Yeah. So let's talk about your book, Political Protest in Contemporary Africa. It shows that there's two forces that drive protests in Africa, right? Political grievances among the middle class and material grievances among the poor. So, right, you were just talking about the low prospects of upward mobility and how that can lead some people to protest. Now, you argue that political grievances determine when protests will occur, while material grievances explain who's likely to participate in protests. In your book, you look both at cross-national data on protest behavior, but also in-depth case studies of Niger and Senegal. Can you say how you first came to this theory of what drives when protests occur and who participates? Did you find that pattern in the cross-national data first, or was it something that you learned through your case study research that you came to that argument? Yeah, well, first I'd like to underscore that it's not just different grievances mm -hmm. that contribute to the protests we witness. It's also the grievances of different categories of actors. And right. so you're absolutely right. There are political grievances that seem to associate more with the timing of protests, mm -hmm. but it's because the leaders of protests, the people who make the first move, harbor right. those political grievances that the events get off the ground. Right. And then subsequently, the people who join the protests disproportionately concern themselves with economic conditions. Mm -hmm. I arrived at that theory inductively mm -hmm. by looking at protests going on in the world, mainly through the media, because I looked at how media were framing protests and none of those frames satisfied me. So the way that headlines describe protests, it's usually in terms of a monolithic grievance. Economic riots shake Cameroon or bread right. riots. Bread riots in um, North Africa. Right, or, yeah. or democratic revolution topples dictator. But let's take the case of the so-called economic or bread riots, economic grievances are constant and ubiquitous. It right. didn't convince me that this was what led people to suddenly take to the streets. Right. Why wouldn't they take to the streets constantly? Right. Right. And so, and that 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 is a criticism that sociologists have issued for, for decades. Mm -hmm. But it didn't seem like anyone had explained how, therefore, the timing of protests would be determined. Right. And so then I thought, well, you know, some of these journalists are describing political protests. So maybe right. the answer lies there. But it also didn't convince me that economic grievances would have nothing to do right. with protests. It right. seemed like both of these types of grievances had to be parts of the story. And so then I developed this theory about first movers and second movers and finally tested it using the different kinds of data that you mentioned. Now, is there any one finding from your research on protests in Africa that you think our listeners should know? Yes, it's that the crowd is not of a single mind. 
related to what I just said. I mean, right. it's it's very tempting for us to look at a protest and apply adjectives. That's a democratic revolution, and that's a bread riot. Yeah. And our brains work with heuristics, and yeah. we work with labels, but it is grossly misleading almost all of the time because a protest is almost always um, a collective action. Mm-hmm. So in order to know what, it, what a protest is really about, yeah. we need granular data. We need information at the individual level. Right. So my answer is really a way of imploring people to gather <laughs> more data, especially yeah. survey data, which are like so unsettling. I mean, surveys have happened forever, but we need more of them. And that's why I'm just in complete gratitude for Afrobarometer. That has been really indispensable. I wrote an entire chapter around Afrobarometer data, and it's such an impressive undertaking. Survey data of protests are especially an impressive undertaking. I think you'll probably have questions about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, that's what I want to ask next. Studying protests is is really not very easy, and in fact, it can be dangerous. The opening vignette for your book draws from the time when we were in Malawi together in 2011 and there was a serious student protest. Even putting that protest into the the broader context in Malawi in 2011, this happened just a month after government forces killed at least 19 protesters and injured hundreds more for protesting against the government in July 2011. How do you navigate the threat of state violence in collecting data and in protecting your research participants? Almost all of my data on protest participation I gathered or Afrobarometer gathered after the protests occurred. Mm -hmm. This is a pitfall of studying survey data on protests because hindsight can taint responses. There are bandwagoning effects where people want to be on the right side of history saying or even thinking to themselves, oh yeah, I was out in the streets to, you know, topple the dictator and good riddance to him, right? When maybe they forgot where they were, maybe they're rationalizing post-talk, why they were there, or maybe there is some flat-out deception. So the gold standard would be to collect the survey data within protests, but the nature of protests is that they're often spontaneous from the standpoint of the scholar. We know that, of course, a lot of planning goes into it in advance, but seldom do scholars have advanced notice of a protest occurring. In fact, that's what initially brought us to Malawi together. We were so excited that for once we had a few months of notice. We had a month. A month. A month notice. Yes. There were the July 2011 protests and the organizers of that protest had said that they were going to hold a candlelight vigil one month later to celebrate the martyrs who had died in the July 2011 protest and we knew that you know this was going to be a major protest event and you being a miracle worker (laughs) mobilized funding for us to assemble a team on the ground and I remember it was the morning of the scheduled protest and you know there were enumerators stationed throughout the country clipboards in hand this was like the the pre-tablet era of survey enumeration (laughs) Yeah. Their clipboards at the ready, and then we're listening to the radio, and civil society calls off the protest. The protest. Yeah. So I, I love that example. It was so frustrating at the time, but yeah. I love that example to illustrate the difficulty of gathering survey data as the action unfolds. Yeah. And so I dream of building a rapid response survey enumeration team yeah. that can, in a second's notice, deploy on the ground to conduct surveys. Right. Like you mentioned in your initial question, this is dangerous work, and so. So I would want the training to really emphasize the safety of the enumerators and of the subjects. And if that means not conducting the survey, you know, then that that's how research happens. I mean, 
this is what's different about social science as opposed to studying cells in a petri dish. Mm-hmm. We have these practical constraints. Right. But I think there is still enormous untapped potential to conduct surveys while protests happen because many of them are are not deadly right right Right. and that's a big difference between protests and riots and civil wars and and armed rebellion Um, why aren't we doing this more I would love to emulate the research of a sociologist named Dana Fisher who has done precisely this kind of within the protest of survey taking in the United States and Mm -hmm. in Europe so for Mm -hmm. example she sent enumerators to the Women's March and the March for Our Lives mm-hmm. in D.C. Mm-hmm. and had them do quasi-random walking surveys yeah. to discover at the individual level what brought people out that day yeah. and found some really surprising results. For instance, that most of the people at the March for Our Lives, nominally a protest about gun reform, were, were there for other reasons. And that really is consistent with the types of findings that I found in, in African context. But it's just really difficult to do that kind of survey enumeration in African context. Right. So I'm working on it. I actually went to California to pitch this concept to right. these like social entrepreneurs, Silicon Valley types, and no one's knocking on my door yet with funding. But if anyone's listening and you right. want to fund this kind of research, email me. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the protest that opens my book is the only one that I observed firsthand while people were engaging in somewhat violent acts. And it was, it was scary. It yeah. Was scary. And it was spontaneous. It's spontaneous in a sense that, you know, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't something we knew was going right. to happen before it happened. That's right. Right. Yeah. Um, now, you were part of a workshop on decolonizing the study of African politics that I co-organized with Zachariah Mompili. This was a few years ago when I was still at Smith College. You might recall that Zach asked a series of questions at the end of his opening remarks, some questions for each of us to think through during that weekend together. Now, those remarks were featured in Ufahamu Africa's episode 24, and he asked six questions. I just want to ask you one of the questions that he raised that weekend. Who is the audience, real or imagined, for our intellectual work? Well, for our or for mine? Yours. Okay, for mine. Well, I would be lying if I said that one of my primary audiences is not my peers in American political science departments. Okay. And that is in large part a function of how our profession is structured. Right. You know, in order to thrive in the American Academy, you need to address the people who will be reviewing your work. Right. And, and I do want to engage with them. I mean, they are part of my audience. But I very much want to extend my audience to others, mm-hmm. especially the communities where I conducted field research. Okay. The work on decolonizing methodology by Linda Tewe Smith has very much interested me and influenced me, specifically her concept of reporting back and this yeah. responsibility that we have as scholars studying places where we're not from to return and share what we have found. So I'm currently planning a reporting back tour of my West African field sites for the spring where I'm going to give presentations on the book, hopefully not just for academic Francophone audiences in Niger, Senegal, and Burkina, but also through translators in other communities as well of ordinary people because it's the ordinary protesters that form a great deal of what I write about in the book. And I'm really excited about that kind of work. I'm also a little nervous to hear how how they'll receive it. And I don't yet have plans to go back to Malawi. It wasn't one of my main research sites, but I would love to go back together and 
you could report back on your book and I could report back on yes. mine and that would be so fun. So I full actually, circle. I actually did a report back on my book. So one How of my go? first book launch events was actually at the University of Malawi at Chancellor College and it was very well attended. I have to, you know, thank my colleagues at, at Chancellor College for publicizing the event. It was interesting. I got a lot of questions that I don't get from other audiences. So mm. I think that that part of it was really refreshing and also just helpful for me to think about some of the issues that I bring up in, in, in the book that I would love. I mean, I always accept invitations to go back to Malawi with anyone. That's fantastic. So, so that would be great. So one last question before we go, we'd like to ask of all of our guests, is there anything that you've read recently, you know, maybe sometime in the last year that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, I would love to plug a book that motivated me while I was writing mine. Okay. And it's not political science. I feel like I should be taking this opportunity no, to good, like please. show how well read I am in my <laughs> sub, sub, sub field. But instead, I'd like to plug Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes. Yes, okay. The famed writer of and creator of television series such as Grey's Anatomy yeah. and Scandal. And frankly, one of the most prolific writers in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's writing... Every week. Every week yeah. for some of the most successful shows in American television history. She's also a trailblazer for women of color. Yeah. And she wrote this book, Year of Yes, containing chapters about her writing process, but within the context of chapters about other facets of her hectic life. And mm-hmm. I feel like that was really helpful to see what it means to thrive as a writer mm-hmm. when the world around you keeps spinning. And that's yeah. true for all of us, but it's yeah. especially true for her. Yeah. And there was one analogy she used in particular that resonated with me throughout my book writing process where she talked about the publication date or for her, the show release date being like a speeding train. And as the writer, you have to keep laying track to prevent it from derailing. It's yeah. it's speeding toward you. So you got to just churn out the pages. That was helpful. And another metaphor she used was about the room where you do your best writing. And for many of us, that's a, that's a, a real place. Yeah, It's that place where we enter the zone or the flow or however you want to put it. Yeah. And it has a door. And it usually takes us a long time to get there and get our butts in the seat and yeah. close the door and get into the flow. Yeah. Because on the way to that door, there are infinite distractions like cookies and cat videos and students. I love my right. students, but you yeah. know, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. But every time we pass through that corridor of distraction mm-hmm. and close the door and start writing in our seats, or at our standing desk, um, <laughs> as the case may be, we we train ourselves to do that faster every time. Mm. And I occasionally read some neuroscience too on mm-hmm. kind of like the uh, how our brains work most productively. And that struck me as, as really intuitive that we're, we are actually training our neurons to enter the zone faster. And that's where we do the work that brought us into the academy to begin with. And something I did recently besides publish this book, this sounds like really obnoxious and... um, and like boastful, I just realized it was train for a marathon. But I felt like training for a marathon was analogous to what Shonda Rhimes was describing, although it was way less difficult than finishing the book. But I feel like that athletic um, analogy helped me understand what I was doing every day I worked on the book, that it really was like a training process. And there was a finish line at some point, you know? Yeah, yeah, so I recommend her we've, book. We've made it all to the finish line, so that's great. Congratulations on your book being out. And, thank and you thank so you much. And podcast. thanks for all your support. 
That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. Don't forget to follow and share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Ufahamu Africa. You can listen to Ufahamu Africa on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our website, ufahamuafrica.com. Ufahamu Africa is a production created by Kimi Dion and currently sponsored by the Program of African Studies and the Department of Political Science at Northwestern University, as well as the Department of Political Science at the University of California, Riverside. Kara Stevick, Medill School of Journalism, Class of 2019, is Ufahamu Africa's research and production assistant. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama. Salama.